Welcome to the Rippling Pages podcast, a podcast on the craft of writing, crafted and curated by me, Liam Bishop. And I'm delighted to be starting the year with a bishop and a priest. I'm joined by Rachel Mann, an Anglican priest and author of over 15 books. Ordained as a deacon in 2005 and a priest in 2006, she's written on topics transcending gender, sexuality and religion. She's also appeared on BBC Radio 2 and Radio 4. And her debut collection of poetry, Kingdom of Love, was published by Carcanet in 2019. Uh, it's a collection that I loved. I wrote a review about it. And it was an exploration of design, devotion, and why, in Rachel's words, God is a problem for language. Her second collection addresses summer themes. This time, in Eleanor Among the Saints, Rachel has decided to focus on the life of Eleanor John Reichener, a seamstress, embroiderer, and sex worker who lived during the 14th century. Reichener is potentially also an example of a trans person living in medieval England. Reichener's history is contentious, but Rachel explores Reichener's story, the temptation to mythologize, and the significance of Reichener's story today. Andrew McMillan said of the collection, nobody else could have written this, poems formed in the space where divinity, the body, trans identity and history fall together. A singular, sensational collection. Rachel, I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me on The Rippling Pages. It is amazing to be here, Liam. Thank you for having me on. Um, it was your poetry that I first came to you. And, and it, as I said in the introduction, it absolutely just excited me. So I had to get you on the podcast. Um, I am super happy to have you here. Um, we've got a very small introduction there to Reichener, but let's start by talking about who Eleanor John Reichener is, or who, maybe this is a question about who Eleanor John Reichener isn't. She's had this most remarkable afterlife as a result of queer medieval studies, which, um, you know, a lot of people think medieval studies is incredibly stuffy. Don't you believe it for a second? It is one of the queerest parts of history, historical and literary uh, study. I guess Eleanor appeared as a result of some really serious scholarship um, looking at uh, various archives. So the only record that we have of the life of Eleanor Reichener, sometimes called John Reichener, is from court transcript. She was put on trial by the mayor of London in about 1394, 1395, and accused of licentious behavior with, um, uh, with a priest. And during her interrogation, Eleanor tells this tale about how she lived a life as a seamstress, as a barmaid, as I guess what we might now call a sex worker, having sex with priests and nuns, sometimes for money, sometimes for pleasure. There's even people who uh, have said that uh, she, she indicates that she was married at one point to a man. But, but here's the thing, Liam, you know, that, you, know you think, gosh, who would have thought such a person might have existed because, you know, of our vision of what the Middle Ages was like? Well, did she exist? I think that's one of the questions for scholars who perhaps have a better grasp on this stuff than I, because for some queer medieval scholars, she is an example of a trans woman living in medieval London. Others have suggested that she's actually a kind of cipher, really, that her story's almost been invented 
as a warning to those who might, in what we would say in modern terms, were pursuing a queer lifestyle. For me as a poet, it matters, you know, I'm, it matters to me that, that there's this kind of, that, yeah, history, and as a poet and as a trans woman, it matters to me that you can find trans figures throughout history, but also I'm there thinking, well, gosh, does it really matter whether she actually existed or not? That Eleanor is recorded on a page means that she has an existence. Why was it the, the medium of poetry that appealed to you for Eleanor's story? Well, in one sense, there is, I think that there's something really, really powerful about the notion that this trans woman, this trans figure was a seamstress and an embroiderer. And I think poets are embroiderers with words. You know, we are, we're people who are involved in the work of assemblage. Um, we look at how we can stitch words together. And I think there's something very particularly interesting about that. I also think poetry can achieve through its desire to stick with the trouble that I think we find in language. It's kind of slipperiness. It's it sometimes it's it's inability to speak in the way certainly I want to make it to, to make language speak. Poetry has a very precise and particular way of working with fictions and counterfactuals. And particularly as someone who I guess has been most definitively influenced by the lyric tradition and the lyric modernist tradition. And it seems to me that that poetry so often operates in, in the realm of, of fragments that we're seeking to bring together in ways in which are illuminating, but don't always make kind of logical sense. So there's something very particular about poetry and and this figure. And I guess as as a trans person now, I mean, I suppose to try and put it in the context of my own narrative, I'm so conscious of how disputed trans identities are in our society now, but I, I'm not sure they've ever been much less disputed, Liam, that there's a kind of erasure. And I think that very often, despite all of my privilege, you know, I'm, gosh, I'm a, an Anglican priest. I, I, I'm involved in the established church. You know, I have position and all of that jazz. Trans people's experiences so often erased. And, and I, it, it, I've often found that I've needed to survive in the institution to turn down the volume on my transness, I guess. And I, that's an indication to me of the extent to which it's transness is difficult to say in the English language. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for for sharing all of that. And there's lots in there. And there's lots lots to unpack. Um, what strikes me is um, whatever this story is about. Thinking about what you said in terms of how it relates to poetry, I'm just really struck by how I don't know if vis viscerality is the right word, but it's so. It's so embodied. It feels so lived. Eleanor tells us a story about how our bodies are in the world. Well, it's it's about being in the world in in one sense. And I mean, I know that's a pretty grand and dramatic statement. Um, 
And I'm really pleased, and and I was very pleased in your review that you kind of picked up on on uh, in your review of a kingdom of love that you picked up on on the importance of bodies to me, but also how there is this challenge to reckon with bodies and, uh, as a person of faith, and specifically as a, a a Christian person of faith, the body really matters to me. I mean. Like, Sunday by Sunday, when I I break bread and share wine, I'm you know then giving to the faithful. I say the body of Christ, and and those people who are Christians are called to be part of the body of Christ, and that is that is an incredibly real and visceral matter for me. But I guess as someone who's had to negotiate the messiness of my own body, and and that's not merely to do with my transness although I don't I want to underestimate that the fact that I live a disabled chronically ill body as well in which I've had half of my bowels removed and I, I'm just very close to the mess of my body and its limitations it's bleeding and it's you know it's mess and that for me is is utterly fascinating. I mean, not in some sort of a sensationalist way, but there I am. I, I want to say what what does this gesture towards? What does this indicate? What's this the inflection points here in in what it means to be a body in the world and to be a trans body or a queer body or a disabled body and you know, I, I have always been both mesmerized, moved, and inspired by the notion that, as it says at the start of John's gospel, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word is God. And then the end of that passage says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so there is a materiality as well to the word, but also to words. And it's about, there's some sort of strange, mysterious dynamic and interchange and truth to be found in dwelling in the word and in flesh. And it's really hard to articulate. Gilles Deleuze, the, the great French theorist says, said, in his, his essay on Spinoza, we do not know what bodies can do. And what I think he was gesturing at is that we so often want to parcel up bodies in particular ways. We, we make them instrumentalized. You know, they are cogs in machines. They are functions. And our capitalist postmodern society tends to do that. You know, we have our role and our function and our bodies get reduced to that. Whereas constantly I think bodies are trying to break free of stuff and I, and I want to articulate that in some of my poetry uh, a fantastic gospel to Deleuze uh which is why why I find you incredibly fascinating uh Rachel how does that you know how does Eleanor's story sit within the church do you think what are the kind of lessons that Eleanor's story you know, perhaps your collection teaches us about faith, but what does it teach us about society as well? Are they the same? Well, Are they different? Are they antagonizing? I mean, well, I think I, I think it is fair to say that I am only too aware 
that this collection, because it foregrounds someone who was put on trial for prostitution, you know, which was criminalised in London. It was not criminalised in Southwark, south of the, the river, but it was criminalised in London, that there will be some religious people who might say, well, this is outrageous, you know, and how could a person of faith and a priest in particular want to give Eleanor any kind of dignity? But I think that what a story like Eleanor Reichener reveals to us is just how complex and messy and interesting a place like London was at the height of Christendom. You know, at the height, this is the, you know, this is one of these high watermarks for Christianity. There are people who have been saying, you know, Christianity has been in retreat in Europe ever since the Middle Ages. And yet here we have this culture where figures like Eleanor could exist. And there is documentation of at least one other trans woman. Uh, she's mentioned in the collection, Rolandina Ronshine, um, a Venetian trans woman. These are, these are people who we, we, we are told don't, you know, they couldn't possibly exist in the kind of narrow minded world of the medieval. But also this is a world where <laughs> Uh, those who were charged with the responsibility of leading the people of God in worship, priests and nuns, might have been getting up to all sorts of saucy and naughty and transgressive activities. Uh, we're going to have a quick break uh, on the Rippling Pages. Now, if you are enjoying today's episode, we've ref- why not give us a five-star review on your favourite podcast provider. It boosts the episode and in turn boosts the audience of this fantastic books that we've got coming to you. Thanks for joining, and I do hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. It just, it seems like this idea of, um, you know, she she could have existed. And it that seems like quite a pertinent message for what you might be saying about today, really, that the, you know, people, these people do exist and that they should be given the space to uh, exist. The records show that Eleanor might have had uh, a job. Uh, she was an embroiderer. She was a seamstress. You know, as much as you seem to write about uh, things being connected, they also seem to disconnect as well. Um, how much did um, exploring Reichenau's craft, the, re- the kind of realities of Reichenau, I guess it's a question of how does does this sort of imbue the fact that you've imbued your craft with it, your poems with it? Does it sort of give more validation, perhaps, to their life? Bring it, give it, you know, make it more concrete to some extent. I I've been fascinated by the craft of sewing and seamstressing, or whatever the you know the gender neutral version of that is. For a number of years, I'm someone. I, I I'm someone who got to a point in my life when I decided I actually wanted to get a sewing machine. I wanted to start making stuff, and I think one of the things that I learned about all of that is that it doesn't matter how good you are at sewing, you will always need a device called a seam ripper. In other words, there's a special device that you use and it, it enables you to sort of tear a seam without damaging all the fabric. 
it's about pulling apart as much as bringing it together. But I also think that there's something of certainly my own experience of being trans in that that image as well. Uh, I'm someone who, at least I like to imagine, I'm reasonably at ease with myself. But there are so often these kind of eruptions and interruptions that happen, particularly, dare I say it, since 2016. I mean, I don't know what happened in 2016. Something happened in 2016. And... Um, and that led to this upsurge of negativity, I guess, about trans identity and a heightened sense of culture war and, and division on social media. And as someone who is, I suppose, reasonably high profile as a trans person, I, I've had my fair pile of rubbish directed my way and I'm robust and I'm you know these things I uh, one way of putting it is to say when people come at me I want to say well no this is a you problem you know that's a you problem not a me problem but these things still have an impact because we're flesh and blood and bone and we're sensitive human beings I can't know her experience of, of course I can't I can't know what it would be like to be a medieval I mean as the the phrase has it that um, some scholars have used transgender-like person would have been. I can't accept that clearly because she was put on trial. There are going to be these assaults on who she is, this interrogation, and that's a tearing as well. But I'm very clear I'm a crafter. You know, I'm someone who's putting things together often occasionally something will come out pretty much fully formed as a poem or a, um, a sequence but more often than not I'm going back and I'm I'm working the material and things fall off I mean I think there's, there's even a poem in the collection called deleted lines so there's a kind of violence as well actually in in the making of poems I mean, I don't know if you can give us a sense of what that, what, which aspect is violent. What do you consider violent about it? How it relates I'm, to sort of how you feel about it? Or is it more, you think just think the act of it is, is a sort of act of, of violence? But there is a sense of constantly trying to learn and relearn my craft. I am unafraid of taking the difficult decision and... There is something surgical here, and maybe it's because I've had experience of so much surgery in my life in one form or another. Excising, maybe that's better than violence. There's an excision that sometimes needs to happen in order for something better and new and fresh to emerge. And gosh, I mean, if we're talking in psychoanalytic terms, I mean, we could really have fun with that. Um, in terms of my journey as a as a as a trans person, as it were, um, there the, the sense of you know what has had to be lost in order for something new to emerge. But there is something really significant for me in seeking to write, and this is so naff, and it's a naff way of putting it, but see, 
trying to write better poems, write better poetry, more precise, more, at least something that approximates more closely to what can be said or what might be said. That requires at times the most ruthless excision. But I think one of the reasons that I ultimately put that in and, and I guess stitched together a new poem from, from deleted, those deleted lines is my recognition that sometimes there are really, really good lines, great lines that have to go in order to set a poem free. But I didn't really want to let some of those lines go. So they've come back in an entirely new way. Well, it's interesting that you do pick up on this poem. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to hear you say about how how it came together, because you wouldn't have discerned that from simply reading it. But what there is a lot of in there, just reading it now, is... Um, I don't want to call it well, there is some relatively violent imagery. Um, but there's lots of sort of verbs that relate to sort of deletion or excision or cutting. All these verbs in there, kills in there, sharpen a knife. There's all these words in there that sort of do relate to a sense of um, you know, as I said, cutting or excision or deletion, um, which seems to imply what you've sort of discussed there. But I think this is also symbolic of the collection itself this is i think there's quite a lot of this throughout the collection a lot of and especially how it relates to the body lots of images of sort of woundedness discardedness uh killed even yeah. as we said corruptibility incorruptibility all these kind of different things in opposition in agreement opposition we have spoken a lot about the the body here but i don't know if some of the what said something of what is said in deleted lines just sort of is a bit more relate to the wider themes about uh the body that you discuss in your poems Wound is closely related to vulnerability, vulnus, Latin for, for for wound. So you get vulnerability, trauma, Greek for wound. And it probably won't surprise you, because I'm speaking from a religious perspective, that... I do not think that in and of themselves, vulnerability, vulnus, wounds to the body are bad things in and of themselves. There is something profound in the Christian mythos about the notion that God incarnate, God himself, becomes wounded and wounded to the point of death. But I also need to reckon with the fact that wounds, whilst they open us to the world, they're, they're a way the world can get in. They can be points of, of infection as well, can't they? They can be the point at which all that we are flows out of ourselves and we're left dead on the ground and there is no return. And I feel as if if I am not prepared as a poet who happens to be religious and who happens to be trans. If I'm not prepared to go to that particular site, the site of vulnerability, of wounds, of trauma, then somehow I'm not actually treating with the facts of what it means to be someone like me in the world and indeed actually to be a human being in the world, whether you're religious 
or not. But the key thing for me, Liam, is that whilst those are places I need to go to, one of the things that I'm I, I'm trying metaphorically to keep at arm's length at times in the poems is a capitulation merely to those wounds. What I mean by that is that it, it's so tempting to become so overwhelmed by those places of pain and, and trauma that that just drives the poetry. And at that point, I feel maybe because I've written that kind of poetry 20, 25 years ago when I was really trying to figure out my craft, if, if I let the pain and the trauma drive the poems, they become diminished as poems because my responsibility as as a poet is to stick with with the language and kind of break the language as well or let the language break me I guess sort of work with the trauma that's embedded in the language in such a way that something fresh comes out they are not just simply me saying let me pour out my pain here you know or let me pour out my or let me try and articulate someone else's trauma they are artifacts which offer something, gesture to something beyond any one particular set of experience. There's something incredibly potent about attending to particular stuff, particular bodies in particular situations, but doing it in such a way that it it becomes its own thing that others then can read. I know there's a sort of um, implicit kind of wishing there or comment about, you know, Eleanor and, and, and Eleanor's story and that it is, you know, that it is alive one way or another, that it has been brought back and people will now see that for what it is too. I, I hope so in one sense. I mean, it's not, you know, I do worry that I also do do a disservice to Eleanor as well. I think that's a reasonable anxiety of any writer that I might wish to say, oh, look, I'm, I'm bringing into a new context, into poetry, the story of this extraordinary, submerged, interesting human being. And look, isn't that great? But I also worry that I mean, to, let's use that the V word again, that there is a, a violence that can be done to said person as well, because I am placing Eleanor in a whole set of contexts, which are, they're counterfactuals. And I, I want to find joy in that. I, I want to say there is such a thing as queer joy or trans joy and that there is something joyous in that, but there's also this huge risk as well about making Eleanor my plaything. And I, I, I do draw attention to that, I think, in various places. I mean, I think most significantly, and it's the the, the poem about which I, I guess, most anxious in one sense, is Eleanor as a 16-year-old murdered trans girl, what is known because I can say hand on heart that that poem was written 
as a response, a profoundly emotional and intellectual response to the death of Brianna Jai, the, the young trans woman murdered in, in Warrington. But the final line of, of that poem also indicates my, my, my fear as well that I'm doing a disservice. You know, it's it's the poem itself is is 14 lines, so it's a kind of sonnet. It's a as such, it's a, a love poem and intended as a, a work of love and a work of trying to recover a voice of someone who's wiped out. But that those final that final couplet, I did not know a body could be killed multiple times. I think this might be one such attempt. There is this indication in that, I think on my own part of my own anxiety that I do a disservice to Brianna and maybe I do a disservice to, to Eleanor because I've brought people who never wanted to be in the public sphere into into my own poetry collection for a public to read. You seem to go back to that word you said uh, not long ago, responsibility. It seems like you feel like quite a lot of responsibility in, 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 in this collection. That's really interesting. And you can hear in my reaction that I think you've, you have identified something, Ellie, in which perhaps I hadn't really foregrounded previously. I have no interest in being some sort of representative person and love, you know, I love writing and, and thinking, uh, wanted to get, get on and, and be a priest in the church of England. But I'm also aware that because I am a, a member of a particular minority who perhaps having a bit of a rough time as well, that, I can't just be me sometimes. There are contexts in which I can't just be me. You know, so there are times, I mean, to give you an example, there'll be situations in the church whereby I can walk into a room and I could say, well, yes, here I am. I'm Rachel, I'm me. But I'm also, oh, here comes a trans woman who certain people will say, oh, she will then represent a particular group. And I don't, you know, I don't represent any particular group. If you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. But mm -hmm. that does still, I, I'm going to be naive if I don't accept that at this particular moment, this cultural moment, things feel really fraught for trans people. And I'm edging ever more towards being a trans elder. Maybe I am a trans, you know, someone once asked me, are you a trans elder? And maybe I am, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. I transitioned a long, long time ago. And I have a lot of privilege and, and relative power and authority. And I feel a kind of responsibility at times to, to do things well. And that actually can be quite debilitating as well as a poet, particularly, because I just want, I want to try and write some good poems, but I also think, oh gosh, this is not an easy time to be trans, and I don't want to. I don't want to make anything worse. I mean, I don't want to make things worse for me in a very selfish way, but I don't want to make things any worse for any anyone else. I want to be someone who opens up 
space. Being able to speak to you about your poetry, but also just to hear, you know, um, even though I know you don't, I know you said you don't want to be sort of, you are not this person or pinned into that group, but it's interesting to hear your views. Eleanor Among the Saints, uh, PBS, uh, Poetry Book Society recommendation. It's out on the 24th of January. As you can probably tell, I love it. I've enjoyed speaking to you about it. Um, it's released, as you said, by Carcanet. But for now, Rachel, I want to thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Liam. It has been fantastic.